With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast. And here are your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. Welcome to Tennis.com podcast Inside the Tour. I'm Nina Pantic. And I'm Irina Falcone. In this episode, we have Judy Murray, the mom of Andy and Jamie. We met up with her at Indian Wells and had an amazing time with her. Let's just launch right into that interview. Um, I'll tell you right now, I'm an avid fan of yours, always have been. And uh, it's pretty exciting to have you on our podcast today. I wasn't doing anything else this morning other than having my coffee. <laughs> Well, we could we appreciate you taking uh, the time. I know that you must be busy. I just want to welcome you to our podcast. Um, I read your book. <laughs> writing a book like that, did you ever? I mean, it's only been a year since it came out, or so. But what was the purpose of writing the book, and what were you trying to accomplish? And do you wish you'd added certain things or taken out certain things? And how do you even write a book? <laughs> <laughs> well, I I figured I would. I always thought I would write a book, but I reckoned that I would do it when the boys had finished playing, and then. I, I was asked by so many parents and coaches particularly, when are you going to write a book? When are you going to tell the story? Um, and I was persuaded actually by um, the publishing arm of the management company that I work with that it would be much more effective to write the book while the boys were still playing. So I started it just after Wimbledon 2016, which Andy won, and finished it in just the beginning of December 2016, just after the boys became year-end world number ones, one in singles and one in doubles, which of course is great for family harmony, but the timing of it was perfect. So the book came out in June 2017, and then about a year after you've done a hardback of the book, the paperback comes out. So I did quite a lot of... um, sort of speaking events around the publicity for the book that was all set up by the publisher and actually found it really helped me to tell the backstory of it because I think for so many years I had been branded by the British media and big sections of the British public as the pushy mom, the mother from hell, she's so competitive, she's, you know, and 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 the, really the British media had painted this picture of me from right from when Andy started in 2005 at Wimbledon of always printing the pictures of me baring my teeth and pumping my fist and, you know, shouting or whatever. And um, I am very competitive and I get really in, involved in what they do, of course. Um, but, you know, I'm not like that in real life. So I found it helped me a lot to let people see another side of me and also see everything that goes into helping to develop a young tennis player because in an individual sport the onus is very much on the parents to make everything happen you know if my kids had gone into a team sport um you know if they had been exceptional footballers or rugby players um, or cricketers they'd have been signed up by a club and they'd have had the transport the fixtures the kit and a fee and and a bonus system and 
largely as a parent you wouldn't have had to be uh, overly involved but in in an individual sport like like tennis it's very much up to the parents to make it all happen and to pay for it so um it was a chance to really do the behind the scenes i suppose tell the behind the scenes story of you know these two little boys who started playing at a very tiny little four court club with artificial grass courts in in a small town in Scotland that has no track record of tennis at all a country that has no track record and how they managed to negotiate their way to the the top of the the, the tennis tree so um yeah it was it was quite interesting writing it because i wrote it with um a proper writer so i spent a you know a couple of hours uh, every two weeks with her um and she would knock out a chapter each week mostly chronologically and what that did was it really made me think back to the whole journey and you remember so many things that you'd completely forgotten about you know um but you also realize how many obstacles you have to get over i think um as a as a parent who you know that there was no support network around me because nobody had done it before in scotland so there was nobody to ask i mean tennis isn't a thing in scotland really it's not a big thing we have about 1% of our population play tennis and we have terrible weather very limited facilities so tennis as a sport in scotland it's just not something that anybody really would imagine you would you would create world champions from so i really had to learn everything for for myself the whole way through the coaching the scheduling the managing the life and business um etc etc and when you start out you just want your kids to enjoy sport that was really all i wanted to do so i had no idea obviously um where we were going with it all um but the the book tells the story of it and i i hope it's helpful to other parents and other coaches and other women who work in 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 a man's world because that was a challenge as well did you think it was a uh, a little bit harder than you expected or easier than you expected to kind of be part of this book journey i think i found the book easy i think probably because somebody else was actually writing it so for for me it was just uh, giving the time um every every couple of weeks um to sit and talk and she would record it and then she would presumably she would go off and transcribe it and then work it into a chapter and i didn't want to see the book until it was finished i didn't want to edit it chapter by chapter i wanted to get the flow of it because Andy had done a couple of books and I'd ended up having to do a lot of the work on them as in editing them because I would remember a lot of the things that happened in the early days that he might not have remembered and I remember trying to do that chapter by chapter and then when the whole thing came out I was like oh I'm not sure that should maybe have gone in there or should have gone so I thought right I'll do it all at the end and so the editing of it was probably the only bit that was quite time consuming and a little bit stressful because you kept having to read and reread and I did about 3 edits of it and by the time I'd finished 3 edits I was completely and utterly fed up with my story. <laughs> You're like I can't read this again. I've already I lived it. I find it surprising that there's no tennis infrastructure in I mean Scotland I know you said the weather is bad and no one's really playing but I feel like these countries could have a great great program and if if Andy and Jamie come out of there shouldn't it be inspiring to have tons of other facilities and indoor courts and money being pumped into it. Have you seen progress since since you were playing? Yeah, I mean when uh when uh when I started as the I, I started as a volunteer in our local club 
uh, when the boys were in nappies. It was nothing to do with them. Well, it was in the sense that I wanted something to get out of the house and be a bit active. So I started to volunteer and I, and I wasn't a coach. I was just uh, someone who enjoyed tennis. And I'd grown up in a... In, in, in the same club that I started to volunteer at and there was no coaches in my day you know you can learn from your parents and then you learn by playing with the other kids at the club and then the ad- other adults taught you how to play the game so when I started volunteering I, I, I started teaching from a I'm just going to teach you how to play the game you know how to make it difficult for your opponent how to make them run etc etc um, but in in 1995 I became the Scottish national coach and that might sound like quite a big position, but it's not when you understand that there was no infrastructure and no indoor courts um, at that time. So tennis wasn't really played 12 months of the year. You played in the summer and you played something else in the in the winter. So there wasn't any infrastructure back then when I started out. But now we have we have a little bit of a more of an infrastructure because we have about half a dozen pay and play indoor tennis centres, and we have a number of commercial centres um, as well still nowhere near enough for it to become a big sport, you know, to really grow the game as a year-round thing. Um, but we have more coaches now, more people working in coaching for a living. So a lot has evolved in those sort of 30 or so years from when I started um, at the club. But we still would love to be able to take advantage of the profile that we have in tennis now because of the success of Andy and Jamie. And it's, you know, we have contenders in Grand Slams and we have, uh, they, they've won some of the biggest prizes in tennis, so the profile is, is huge. But to take advantage of that inspiration and excitement, you need to have public facilities, but you also need to have people to deliver activity in those facilities. And it must, it must be affordable, and the facilities must be accessible. And that's the thing that we've struggled with, is the whole building a big enough workforce to really grow the game, putting in enough public facilities so that people who see it on the TV and want to try it, they don't have to rock up and join a club. They can just go down the park or go to the local school. And that's the bit I think that we need to do much more of, you know, but uh, because I, I, you know, I kept saying the boys won't play forever. We need to take advantage of it now. And that really inspired one of the programs that I started about five years ago, which is called Tennis on the Road. And it's really just a van full of equipment and me and another coach and we work 50 days a year and we take tennis into rural and deprived areas of Scotland and we build workforces in the local community. So we train parents and teachers and students and youth leaders and coaches of other sports to deliver starter tennis to kids or teens or adults in pretty much whatever space they've got. So if it's a school gym or a church hall or community centre, school playground, um, you know, one of these multi-activity artificial grass um, playing areas that you can put your pop-up nets on. So um, I kind of tried to do my bit that way, but we, we need a big push now before the boys stop playing because once they stop playing, you don't have your leverage anymore and you don't have your excitement and your inspiration. So uh, it kind of needs to happen now. But uh, So and I'm really hopeful that the tennis authorities... Uh, we'll really get behind it now, especially now that Andy's sort of talking about, you know, he doesn't know how much longer he will be able to, to play. I mean, how, how tough is it knowing that the end might be near? Is it something that you guys talk about a lot because they're both in their 30s? Um, do you guys talk about it a lot? Is it a scary step? Is it, you know, time? 
or what are the thoughts in that? No, it isn't anything that we've ever, ever talked about. I think that, um, you know, what happened to Andy, it was unexpected. You know, it was a, a, an injury that happened uh, during the semi-final of the French against uh, Babrinka and Andy ended up with you know, a pretty serious hip problem and Stan ended up actually with a pretty serious knee problem as a result of that incredibly gruelling five-set match. So such is the demands of the way that tennis is in the, in the Grand Slams, you know, five sets, you can be out there for five hours and the level is so, is so high, you know, it's incredibly physically and mentally, um, challenging for everyone. But yeah, that, that was sort of thrust upon him. Um, I mean, you just have to look at Venus and Serena and Roger, you know, they're playing well into their thirties and still right up at the top of the game. So I think with all the advances in sports science and sports medicine, players are able to stay at the top for longer because the top players, of course, can afford big teams of expert people around them to keep their bodies in the best possible shape. Um, so it wasn't anything that we we had ever talked about as a family. I think I was more aware of it because of where I'd come from, of, you know, when I played tennis in Scotland and I was a Scottish number one for many years, which might sound quite good, but the playing field was tiny, you know, but you can only beat who's who's in front of you but when when I was playing in in tennis tournaments in Scotland you know one man and his dog would come and watch and now we've got like semi-finals of the Davis Cup in Glasgow and we've got you know Wimbledon champions and so forth and you know if you can't take advantage of that when it's happening you know when are you going to be able to take advantage of that um, as a sport so I was probably more aware that not enough was happening to take advantage of it. And that was why I started the Tennis on the Road program and probably why I, I use my gob as much as I do to kind of talk about we need... To, because you need to prepare for a legacy. You can't just say, oh, they stop playing, we need a legacy. You have to prepare for it. It's the same with Olympics and things like that. You, you have to prepare it in the run-up to it so that the event doesn't just finish and then you go, oh, wow, we've got all these facilities, what are we going to do with them? You, you need to prepare and that was really what I started to do with the Tennis on the Road um, program so we're at a stage in Scotland now where some money has come in from Sports Scotland and the LTA to invest in indoor facilities so these mostly these sort of fabric uh, based uh, structures so that we they're, they're much less expensive so we can have more of them but if we can get more people playing all year round we can have more people coaching all year round and we start to create more of a an industry for, for, for coaching and an opportunity to, I think, uh, keep people in the game for, for longer. I was going to say, I, I've actually never heard that phrase that you have to prepare for a legacy. And I just think that's so cool. Um, and I just wanted to know, when did you kind of make like the two and two connection that you had to start preparing? When did the shift occur? Was it when Andy and Jamie were like top 100? Was it like when they were top 50? Or was it when they became one in the world? Both of them, like, when did it start to shift in Scotland for you guys? I think, I think when I became really aware of it was after Andy won Wimbledon in 2013. And, uh, I mean, who would ever have expected somebody from Scotland to, to win Wimbledon? And I just thought, this is, you know, this is such a huge thing. I mean, in Britain, we, I think 77 years since a British man had, had won Wimbledon. Obviously, Virginia Wade won the women's in 77. But, um, so long since a British man had won Wimbledon and suddenly it was somebody from our country in Scotland and I thought wow we have a huge chance to really get the country behind this because the excitement that that caused um, 
you know, in, in Scotland was absolutely massive. It was history, you know, it was, it was huge. And that's when I thought, you know, nobody was ready for this happening, you know, because all of the park course and all of the clubs in Scotland should have been opening their doors to everybody right after that. All summer, it was the summer holidays from school, get the families in, get everybody in. And we just weren't, weren't ready for it. We just didn't have, probably didn't have anybody um, with the vision up there working in the, within the governing body. Um, and then did we have the workforce then? Probably not big enough workforce. So that was really when it hit me that, wow, he just won Wimbledon and what difference is it going to make? It's going to make the usual excitement for two weeks after Wimbledon, which is what you always get. And then, you know, unless there are local courts and somebody showing you how to play or organizing something, it, it often tails off and you don't capitalize on that interest. So that was when I started thinking about the Tennis on the Road program and I launched that in 20, 2014. More on a personal level, on your, on your personal level, um, a lot of people think that being a coach, especially if you're a player, so you played, you know, we both played, you're, you're playing, trying to go pro or you're trying to play Division One tennis, a lot of people feel that being a coach is kind of like a failure or a step down and no one really goes out into the world as a young kid being like, I want to be a tennis coach. Do you think that should be a, a twist in our in our perspective? Because that's the way I, I mean, not now, maybe not now that I'm an adult, but as a kid, that's how I saw it. Yeah, I, I think, um, I think we all need to work hard to create a coaching industry that is really attractive. Um, because certainly when I was young, there were no coaches. So if you can't see it, you can't be it. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of what I do now, you know, speaking at conferences, for example, I would never have imagined myself speaking at, I mean, the biggest conference that I did uh, uh, sort of 2014 was you know, probably even before that was the ITF conference and I was asked to do it and I got there to Mexico I, I really didn't want to do it and there were 900 people there and I just fell ill for you know for about two days before I had to speak um, but the way that I was talked into doing it was I'd been having a go at this guy in the ITF about they'd just announced that their their latest board, their newest board, and it was all men, so it was 14 men. And I'd been reading about this online, and so I was having a go at this guy who was the director of development at the ITF, and I said, this is ridiculous. How can you have an entire board of men? You have to have women on there because women will think and act on behalf of the girls' and women's side of the game. Men won't. They will think and act first on behalf of men. It's perfectly natural. But that's why we need women on there to promote the, the women's side because they feel it on behalf of women. They see the world through the lens of, of women. That sounds a bit cheesy, but I heard somebody else say that and I thought it sounded quite good. And, and he, he said to me, Judy, he said, what you have to understand is that our constitution says we can only select people onto the board who are put forward by their national federations. And if the National Federations only put forward men, we can only select men. And I was like, and he said, so you women have got to start stepping up. You've got to start using your voices. And he said, well, look at you. He said, how many times have I asked you to speak at this ITF conference? And you say, no, I can't speak in front of people. And I said, that's true. 
And I went away and thought about it, and I, I, I sent him a message and went, right, okay, I'll come and speak at your conference, because I thought, it's absolutely right what he said. If we don't put ourselves forward, and if we don't step up, and we don't open our mouths, we, we won't open any more doors. You know, we can complain about it as much as we like, but we actually have to walk the walk and talk the talk. So I went to do this conference, and I was absolutely, oh, it, I was in pain with like, the thought of doing it, especially when I saw how many people were there. But then, you, you know, you get up and you start speaking and you're looking at the audience and you realize that probably out of those 900 people, there are 800 guys and maybe 100 women. And that's when you realize if they can see somebody speaking or somebody out there coaching in front of an audience or like Amelie Maresmo working with Andy and now with Luca Pui, if you can see it, you can be it. And it, that is why I started doing some conferences so that there was a female presence because in all the years that I attended conferences and workshops in other countries in order to learn to be a coach because there was nobody to learn from in Scotland I never once saw a female coach make a presentation maybe a sports scientist occasionally usually a nutritionist but not a coach doing an on-court presentation or working with players or talking about their journey never once and so after I did that one in Mexico and totally out of my comfort zone, but when you go out your comfort zone and you survive something, you get a lot of confidence from it. So I thought, right, I'm going to do three things a year if I get asked. And, and that was how I started doing it. And I'm not saying I'm gagging to do these things, but it is really important that we have a presence. And um, yeah, that, that's be, being a female presence and a lot of these things is is a big thing for me, so I'm happy to do it while I've still got the still got the energy, and I'm not too old because I am a granny now. <laughs> Very exciting. <laughs> so obviously, I mean, you you've done a phenomenal job with your uh, two boys. Uh, is there ever thoughts for a third child? <laughs> I think uh, I think two's enough, and it's too late now. <laughs> I'm just curious like did you had you always wanted boys was it obviously I mean you can't plan it hope I mean there's science to that but you can't really plan it back in the day I'm, I'm sure did you want boys or was a girl did you want a girl <laughs> uh, I have two younger brothers so I was perfectly happy with what I with what I got and um I, yeah I think when you have two younger brothers you're used to having boys around and maybe that helped me a lot but I think also being sporty just being because I love sport my whole family loves sport my parents and my brothers as well so you know when when I had my own kids it's like second nature just to go out and play with them anywhere garden backyard um, I was, you know as soon as they could walk they were throwing and kicking balls or balloons and things around and uh, yeah, I think you, you know, we're all products of our environment. So I kind of did with my kids what my parents had done with me. And as I wanted them to love sport as much as I love sport, because it's a big part of my life. But we'd never have had any, any inkling of where we were going to end up. So what's been the most exciting part about being a granny? <laughs> Actually, it's lovely to have um, little girls in the yeah. family. It's nice to be able to give them back to the parents, right? At the end of the day. Yeah, I think that's a huge benefit. <laughs> so I just had one question going back to what you were talking about, um, the coaching aspect of it. I'm, I'm sure you get this question a lot, but if you had someone that came up to you and just said, you know, what's one piece of advice that you give me? I'd want, I want to get into coaching. 
I'm really hungry for it. I want to, whether it's a junior player, whether it's a tour player, what would be um, one bit of advice that you'd get? I think the the quickest way to get good at something is to work alongside somebody who's already great at what they do. You know, so I think if you're if you if you're thinking about getting involved in coaching, is to find somebody in your local area is probably the simplest way to get started. Find somebody who's really good at what they do, who has a really good reputation, a good track record if you're looking to go into player development, someone who communicates well, big personality, someone who cares, um, and work alongside them and see how they do it. Because I think a lot of coaching qualifications and courses that you go on, they show you what to do, and they usually will explain why to do but they don't really show you how to do or how to be as a person. So I think, for me, the quickest way to get good is go and find somebody and ask if you can shadow them for you know, a, a period of time, help out, observe what they do, why they do, how they do, how they are. And I think how you are and how you do is every bit as important as what you do um, because you it's the relationship that you create with your players whatever level or sex or background they they are it's uh, it's about about how you how you are i don't remember a single female coach when i was playing like as a kid going to camps going to lessons i don't remember a single female coach but is i kind of think maybe part of the reason there's not that many on tour maybe is because women are the ones that have to have the kids right so you have in your mind you're planning you know by the age of 30 you want to have children it'll take you know at least a year and i think is that maybe one of the roadblocks for why? And also, I, I feel like a lot of guys think a woman probably can't hit with them as well as a guy would. And hitting partners on the tour, I think, have the dream job. And there's no women doing it because no one wants to hit with girls. Yeah, I, I noticed that a lot when I was traveling a bit on the WTA tour. When I was doing Fed Cup, I used to go sometimes with, with our girls. And it was one of the first things that I noticed when I went to the WTA event in Auckland at sort of um, New Year time, uh, just when I started with Fed Cup, and I sat in the player lounge and I was watching everybody come through the door and thinking, God, I don't know anybody because I'm so used to being on the men's tour and you know loads of people because you're... And I was thinking, gosh, there's no women, there's no women. Where are all the women? I just expected there to be some women on the women's tour. And there really wasn't. One, one or two, but really predominantly um, guys. But to, to go back to the hitting partner thing... You you do notice that most of the women prefer to hit with a guy, and I think I think that is a there's a security in that of hitting with somebody who you you're never going to compete against a guy. Your guy is there because you employ them to be there, and they can do whatever it is that you want to do. And many girls, when they practice, they they hit they practice in a kind of almost like a set format, and there's a security in a set format because you know what's going to happen, and you keep yourself strong and confident by not playing points and getting yourself into a losing situation against a fellow female competitor. I, I, I was really fascinated by it because I always think that the closer you get to, to your match time, the more specific you need to make your practice to replicate what you're going to get in a match. So therefore, hitting in set patterns against a guy just doesn't fit, in my opinion. You know, and they'll tell each other where they're going to serve to. I'm going wide. I'm going tee. I'm, I'm thinking, you're about to play a match. You don't know where the ball's going to go. Just, you know, I, I never really got that side of it because my kids, uh, and actually all the kids that I worked with, 
I never would have trained them to be like that. I would always train them to be open and play points and be competitive and think for themselves and all the rest of it. So I see, I can understand, I think, psychologically why that happens. But I think on the hitting partner thing, I think that is a good point. And we also have to remember that not everybody can afford an entourage of team around them. And if you can only afford one person to be going with you and you need somebody that you can hit with all the time, that, I think, falls into the hands of, 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 of male coaches who can play well because they can fulfill both roles, the coach and the, the hitting partner. Having said that, I think we, if we recognize that and we want to encourage more women to, to be on the road and to take up um, coaching positions at the top end of the game, perhaps we need to create on the tour in the same way as we create uh, physios at all of the tournaments that are available, you know, two or three physios at each tournament that are available for all the players. Maybe we need to create a team of hitting partners that are available so that the female coach, the, the player is not having to pay for the hitting partner because it's part of the service that the WTA provides and it allows the female coach to coach, but you go and you you sign up for, for your, your hitting partner who becomes part of the tour like the physios do. And I think the other thing that I, that I would like to see happen because there's so much uh, more challenges with mental health nowadays is that we should have, whether it's lifestyle counsel, counselors or sports psychologists, we should have somebody available for the players, male or female, to go to to speak about how they are feeling mentally. That is every bit as important as your, you know, as, as your body working and there's, you know, with all the, there's so much more awareness of, of mental health now. So if a player has a problem with something emotional, something physical, something financial, something parental, it could be all sorts of things, but they don't have anybody to talk to about it and they're on the road all the time, that builds up all sorts of emotional and mental turmoil. So I think you have to be aware of the world in which you live now. I mean, look at what social media does to some of the players out there, I mean the abuse that, that goes on, you know, and you need somebody who's trained to help you to, to, to manage that. So I think there's lots of, lots of things that could be done that would encourage a more balanced environment on the, on the coaching side and maybe encourage more women players to take on female coach and more female coaches to, to get involved. But you're right about the traveling because, you know, if you're on the road 30, 35 weeks of the year, it's grueling for the players, it's grueling for the coaches as well. And, you know, if you have a family, it's very, very tough. Um, you know, the separation times is, is really hard as well. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually a really good idea. I will say, um, I feel like I do have to not defend the WTA, but there are, uh, I think, two members that travel to a lot of WTA tournaments that are, they're, I think they're licensed uh, psychologists, so you can talk to them. Um, there's just some people that feel a little open, maybe talking to someone from back home. Um, and uh, I know right now, for example, there's someone on the tour that I'm talking to with stuff that I'm dealing with. And I have spoken to a few girls and they have said that she's helped them a ton. But uh, I think you bring up a good point. It's the world we live in today. Five years ago, I don't know that that was there. Ten years ago, I don't know that that was there. So I think that there's definitely progress being made. Um, and the hitting partner thing, 
you bring up a great point. I was part of the board for a long time, and that was something we brought up as well. And at the end of the day, a lot of the times you get stuck at it's going to cost money and who's going to pay for it. Uh, the tournaments are a lot of times it's they're not making enough money. Uh, so the idea of having to, let's say, five hitting partners. Trust me, I'm on your side on this. I think it's, it's it should be there. It should be there. It should be something that is provided. A lot of times they do. I remember hitting with a hitting partner that they provided in a tournament in Australia. And it was a 13-year-old boy that couldn't hit more than four balls. Um, so there should be maybe like a vetting system that's in place. Um, but yeah, I think those are all great points and yeah, hitting partners would be great at every tournament. Um, what are you involved with now? So like day to day in your life, um, working, you're in, in, into wells, you travel a lot. What are you, what are you up to? I'm up to all sorts of things. Um, my biggest project at, at the moment, um, yeah, I'm trying to get a, a tennis center off the ground in Scotland, just outside Dunblane where we live, um, that's part of a multi-sport and leisure complex. Um, I've been working on it for about just over five years now. It's, it's been a huge, uh, a huge, time-consuming, challenging project, but basically I, I, I wanted a base to work from. Um, so. I'm hopeful that we can press uh, press the green button on it uh, sometime this summer and start getting it built. But that would give me a base to work from, you know, four, four indoor courts, half a dozen outdoor courts. And from that, I, w- I want to run my outreach program with my van, so in the local, the local area, so we can help to service um, the local clubs if they don't have coaches, which most many of them don't, um, take tennis into the local schools and we build up a whole tennis network around our town um, and we use the, the, the tennis centre as the hub. But tennis on its own can't, it can't stand on its own without being very expensive. So in order to make it affordable, we set the whole complex up as a charitable trust and we've put in um, six-hole golf. It's all very community-based, family-focused, which is all the things that, that we believe in. So we have six-hole golf with a driving range and the, you know, the fun putting, the crazy golf, that kind of stuff. So it's destination, it's fun. We have two little five-a-side football pitches. We have an um, adventure playground outside with all the ropes through the trees and the nets in the trees and all the rest of it. So this is all about playing outdoors, being active, we have an obesity problem in Scotland. We uh, so it's for me it's 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 about fa- it's very fa- family focused, which is of course everything that uh, kind of drove, I suppose, what what we did with uh, with getting involved in sports. So it'll have a gym and a fitness rooms. It's got climbing walls and a soft play. We have to have lots of indoor things because we have really bad weather in Scotland. So I'm trying to get that off the ground, but. You know, if I have somewhere to work, then it means that people can come to me and I can share the... I've been coaching about 30 years now and my philosophy is all about making it fun but creating games and activities that do the teaching for you because generally speaking, kids don't want to listen to you but they do want to play with you and they can't take in technical information. So if you create something that mimics the movement or the action that you're trying to teach and they do it without realizing, then they're learning through play. So that's my whole philosophy. But we would use this base as almost like a national workforce building center for Scotland, and that gives us a chance to grow the game. But that's the legacy. You invest in people, adults, 
to go out and grow the grow the game. But if I have a base right in the centre of Scotland, then people can come to me instead of me driving around Scotland in my van. Because <laughs> I'm getting a bit old for that. <laughs> so that's that's my big project. I do my Miss Hits program, which is a little fun starter program for girls, uh, age five to eight. It is also a great program for encouraging more women to get involved with tennis delivery because it's it's such a gentle fun program and it's non-technical so basically anybody can get involved it's great for your older teenagers at your club to come in and assist work alongside you grow your numbers mums um yeah club members um so we uh we're doing quite a lot with that we've brought that into the states we're working with the ptr on that and they're training up their tutor workforce they call them their clinician workforce and so they'll go out and and run run courses because you know, when I was doing Fed Cup, every every country, every captain that, that, that I spoke to whenever you were in a meeting, they were all saying the same thing. We don't have enough girls coming into the game. We don't have enough women coaching. So I thought, right, it's exactly the same in my country, uh, in the UK. So that was really when I went out and thought, well, you know, you don't sit back and wait for somebody else to do it. You go out and do it yourself. That's always kind of been my way. So I went out and created the program. So I've been running it for about five years now in the UK. We have about 400 coaches and teachers using it. It's about creating a group of girls because girls stay in things if their friends stay in things. So if you create a little group of girls right at the start, you have far more chance of keeping them in whatever activity it is because they'll move through together with their friends. But the mishits characters are animated characters. I mean, we invested a lot in it. The talking heads are all international characters because tennis is an international game. So we have Bella Backhand and Faith Forehand and so forth. So the girls learn about tennis through the characters and they develop the skills that you need to be able to play tennis through the fun activities. And all of the activities are perfectly suited for boys and girls. But we just created a girls' environment around it with the characters and with the multicolored um, balloons and beanbags and chiffon squares. All the fun, slow-moving equipment that makes tennis more doable, more stimulating more like going to a tennis party because if you give a little kid a bat and a ball and a net right at the start of their tennis journey they are likely to find it too difficult because with all the playing on screens and things now kids are less coordinated than they were and our sport is a very complex coordination sport so it's difficult and kids have less resilience now because the world's too easy for them so we have to understand the world in which we live so I understand the world according to girls, so I created this uh, this program, and it's great fun. It's really, really great fun. So, looking forward to spreading it uh, across America with the with the PTR. I'm learning a lot just listening to you. I'm like, ah, oh, that makes sense. Like when I was five to eight years old, I mean, I if I saw a big core, I was like, all right, what am I gonna do here? So yeah, those are all very entertaining things that keep the attention span going. I just found out that our attention span is eight seconds now, so. Makes makes sense. Um, so you've probably got this question before of um, what would you tell yourself or what advice would you give yourself if you had a chance to talk to yourself from back when you were young? Um, is younger, excuse me. Um, and I just had a question. Um, would you have the same advice that you tell yourself from when you were playing as to when you were coaching? As when you started coaching compared to when you started playing, would you be giving yourself the same advice if you had the chance? Yeah, I think I think if I was looking back to, you know, when I was when I was in my you know in my teens and coming towards the end of school, I, I would definitely be saying to myself, look, just be more confident in yourself, take more risks. 
I think, you know, I had an opportunity to go to America on a tennis scholarship when I was 17. And when I was offered it, it wasn't a big thing like it is now. It's very normal now. And also the world was so different then. You know, you didn't have internet. You didn't have Skype or FaceTime or mobile phones. You didn't have ATM machines. You were very disconnected from anything. So trying to find out or speak to anybody who had done that before was impossible. Now it would be just so easy. And because many people have done it before, you would just go, yeah, I'm going to do that. And you can fly there and it's easy. And, you know, you can go online and you can see what it looks like. And you can speak to other people who are there. You can talk to the coach. It just wasn't like that then. And I wasn't brave enough to, to do it. And it's, it's probably the only thing in my life that I look back and go, oh, I wonder if, I, if I'd done that, what, what would have happened? But, you know, having said that, I, I don't believe in looking back. I don't, see the, I don't see the point in it because you can't go back. So you always just have to, you have to look forward. I think it's like my whole thing in life is what, like, if you want to do something, you, you go ahead and do it. Or you see something needs to be done, you go ahead and do it. You don't wait for somebody else to do it for you. And if you don't know something, you try and find somebody who does know who you trust, who you would listen to. But, you know, by and large, it's common sense. It's, it's, I just have, common sense has got me by, or my gut has got me by in most things when I haven't really known anything. So I think you, you, you have to trust your gut. But yeah, I, I wish I had been able to be more confident, probably, in my, in my teens. I would probably be quite typical of a girl more worried about what people thought of what I, how I looked or what I did instead of thinking about what is it that I want to do and yeah, too too concerned about what other people think of you whereas now not not so much but you know it's so many years later and so many you've travelled so many miles and but um, yeah I think that's very aware of creating an environment in which girls can thrive very much very much so I guess my last question, I think, is uh, what's your favorite dessert? Because I'm a big dessert <laughs> fan, and every time I see your post, I'm like, I need something sweet, like ASAP. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of a cakeist, if that is a word. Um, yeah, I think probably my favorite, uh, my favorite dessert, I actually really like anything with banana and pineapple in it. So some kind of, um, some kind of sundae with coconut ice cream and bananas and pineapple maybe some kind of hot caramel sauce or white hot white chocolate sauce on the top of it she's got it down like she knows i love that that's getting the job done for me big time that was very specific kind of what i kind of what i expected it would be yeah well not not the kind but just a specific answer um what's what's the the role with world team tennis is that just um the summer is that yeah, it was an opportunity for for me to get involved with um, Billie Jean and uh, Ilana and Barbara and Craig uh, with Philadelphia Freedoms, and um, I'm a huge believer in team team tennis of any sort. I mean, I love everything that all these new things that are coming into tennis that are team based. I love that because I think for player engagement and for fan engagement in particular, it's much easier to galvanize fans behind a team, you know, whether that's a local team or a national team with like Fed Cup and Davis Cup. Um, 
you know, and, and you get supporters, it, it becomes more of an atmosphere like you'd get at a, a soccer match or, or something. So I've, I've always loved the, the team thing because we, we have a, a predominantly individual sport and it can be very lonely and isolating at times. So um, I, I, I've never really been at a, I've never been at a World Team Tennis match. I've seen some on the television and I thought, you know, I'd love to learn about that, about how it's all put together. Um, but when uh, when they asked me if I would like to, to get involved, uh, a bit on the player side and a bit on the community engagement side, so trying to build tennis around the team in the Philadelphia area, that's really my kind of thing. You know, teaching people how to teach it, parent and child sessions, huge number sessions, those are my kind of things of showcasing our sport and sharing the love for your sport and, and, and so forth. So um, I'm looking forward to it. So it, it, it happens, as you know, just after after Wimbledon. So um, I'll go across for, for some of the home matches and uh, really look, I'm really looking forward to it because it's all about trying new things and learning new things. And also it's about relationships with people. You know, if you create relationships with people, you I mean, you can achieve great things. We can't do things on our own. And I'm figuring, right, okay, a lot of the things that I really believe in feed into this uh, this opportunity with the Philadelphia Freedom. So I'm looking forward to it a lot. I mean, World of Tennis is great. Irina's playing it, so she knows. I love, well, I was part of a college team, uh, so any kind of team environment usually fires me up. I mean, cheering for someone else other than yourself. I love playing doubles, too. So anytime you can take the kind of not necessarily the spotlight but when you can transfer your energy and your positive energy to someone else to do well for your team I think that's that's spectacular you can't really describe it so I, I'm all about the team environment I think uh, I think I would get fired if I didn't at least in some way talk about like Andy and the year and how tough it's been yeah. and not really like expectations, but how, I mean, I feel like it's weird for Jamie too, isn't he used to having Andy around and yeah. used to being on tour together? Like what's been the toughest or the, the, the most trying part, just not knowing what's going to happen? Yeah, well, I think that, I mean, the hardest part is <clears throat> is watching your, you know, watching one of your kids not be able to do what, what he's done for most of his life and, um, and, and also being in pain, you know, being very aware that he's been in pain for about 20 months. So... You know, you watch him compete, and he's walking, he's walking with a little bit of a limp, and you know how much pain he's in uh, just on a daily basis. Even you know, things like tying his shoelaces and you know uh, pulling on his socks and stuff like that. And it's like oh, that—that's the hardest, the hardest part, I think, is um, you know because you know how much it means to them. It's 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 their life. Um, so anyway, he's you know he's had the hip resurface uh, surgery. And uh, it's you know it's it's still early days, so just waiting to see how he how he recovers from that. And, and nobody knows because I think Bob Bryan had I think it's been seven months since he had his surgery, and he's back playing, you know, at the at the top level, which is good. Although doubles is a different um, physical demand than than singles, so we just really need to wait and see. But yeah, it's it's been tough, and you know, just the whole. Um, 20 months of him going through all sorts of different procedures and rehab and how much he's put into it and worked so hard to try to get back and we just keep our fingers crossed that he can uh, he can get back I mean it's not easy that's that's just such a challenge I think especially because he was 
doing well. You know, it's not like he was on his way out or anything. He's still at the peak of the game, you know, and you want to feed him back so badly and the media is crazy and obsessed with him. And, and I feel like that must also be annoying as well because people are always asking questions. When's he going to put him back? What's he doing? Had surgery? Do you do surgery? I feel like it must be so annoying having all the media attacking you all the time. Yeah, well, I think, I think he's used to it. It's part and parcel of, uh, yeah. of the job. But I think, you know, when, if you're ill or you're injured, I mean, that's private. That's your business, how much you tell people in terms of what it is mm-hmm. that's, that's wrong with you. And I think, you know, everybody was dying to know um, what, what, he, what exactly he was doing. You know, I think it, the way that the tennis world is, because uh, players have to give press conferences, win or lose after every single match, media are fed on a very regular basis everything that they want to know about about the players and then suddenly you're not playing and they 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 want to know um everything and then you if you don't tell them anything you 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 get them speculating and <laughs> about what it is or actually saying oh i know what it is or getting you know your medical experts saying it's definitely that and you should do this and that and it's like Phew. but anyway uh, but it is it's i mean that's just uh you, you kind of get used to it. <laughs> you kind of get used to it. We've definitely taken up a ton of your time. So <laughs> I, re- right. I really appreciate it. This has been such okay. an honor. Honestly, like I'm a massive fan of your Twitter account, basically. <laughs> um, but I've really enjoyed it. I think you have so much insight. I'm going to yeah, answer go. that. Thank you, Judy. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Sorry, I'm just, I'm just going to take that. So Judy Murray had to run to another interview, so that's why it was a bit of an abrupt ending. But still, I think it was an amazing talk with her. It ran a little bit long, as you can tell. That's it for this episode. This has been the Inside the Tour podcast. I've been Nina Pantic. And I've been Irina Falcon. Thanks for listening. You've been enjoying the Tennis.com podcast. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com. 